economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith and economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith and Economics Podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, co-producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Bernard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, Nate Johnson, my fellow producer and graduate assistant. All right, so we're in our last part of a four-part series here on the philosophy of mind. What is that thing up in our skull and how does it connect or relate to our actions and what we do? And uh, is there a couple things going on or uh, I don't know, I need, I need a little help from our philosophy professor here. So property dualism is our uh, last area to cover. Justin? It's probably useful to take a, a brief recap and say why we've arrived at where we are at and maybe to do one last little uh, discussion about functionalism and physicalism in general, of which functionalism can be seen as a part. So we started out talking about Descartes and Descartes' version of dualism, which is this idea that there are two different kinds of substances in the world. There are physical substances and mental substances, and they interact with each other on dualism. Remember, dualism, the Cartesian version of dualism is called substance dualism. It is this idea that we are mental things and we inhabit a physical body or we pilot a physical body and minds somehow interact with physical bodies. Our mind, which is its own substance, tells our physical body what to do. And our physical body, which is its own substance distinct from a mind, transmits information to the mind, right? So there's this interaction back and forth between minds and bodies. And it seems very clear that we do gain information from our senses. And it also seems clear that we transmit information to our bodies. The problem is that it's, it's unclear on this Cartesian view how that's even possible. So this is what's called the interaction problem. We know how physical objects interact with other physical objects. We know how physical events cause other physical events. They cause other physical events according to the laws of physics. To say that a mental event causes a physical event, where a mental event is something that's separate from a physical event, it's not clear how that causation would work. It seems like when we talk about causation, the type of causation that we are talking about is physical causation. And by definition, a mental event can't physically interact with a physical event according to the laws of physics. The laws of physics describe how physical events cause and relate to other physical events. So enter physicalism, which was the view that, oh, well, maybe actually minds are just physics. Minds are just physical things. Maybe there's only one type of thing. And on this view, then we could either reduce talk of mental events to physical events, say that pain is just C-fiber 32 firings, or we could even eliminate our mental predicates altogether, eliminate what's called folk psychology, and just talk like educated people like the Churchlands who say things like, had I not been so, you know, if it weren't for my endogenous opiates, I would have wrapped the car around a tree, something like that, right? And that seems crazy. So then we talk about functionalism, and functionalism was the view of the mind which arose parallel to our understanding of computers, which said maybe the mind is like a software that runs on the hardware that is the brain. 
And on this view, the mind can be realized in a bunch of different physical structures, which is why octopi can have brains or octopi can have minds. And humans can also have minds, even though octopi central nervous systems are completely different than human brains. I mean, they might not share the same types of physical structures that instantiate the same mental events uh, that ours do. Now, I think we have gotten as far as listing some of the problems with functionalism, right? When we talked about things like the spectrum shift and how that seemed like possible, but a little weird, right? Probably the most famous argument in, or the most famous paper in the philosophy of mind in the 20th century was written by Thomas Nagel. It's called, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? We can start out by thinking about like the sea slug, which is a really simple organism. And we've actually mapped the central nervous system of the sea slug. It's a project that people have to map, you know, the the brain of humans. And if you were able to map the brain of a human, you would be able to know, given exactly what inputs, what output you would get, right? Mm -hmm. So when we've mapped the brain of the the sea slug, we know exactly how the brain of the sea slug works. We know how its central nervous system works. We can tell, given any input, what what a specific sea slug will do, et cetera, right? And Nagel says, great, okay, but let's think about for a second what it's like, what what a bat is and how do, you know, bats are very, very weird. They sleep upside down. They're super spooky, Uh, (laughs) but also they- uh, (laughs) Big fangs. (laughs) Big fangs. Too spooky. Um, They, uh, you know, bats get around by echolocation, right? And if you try to think about what it's like to be a bat, the echolocation is actually very, very weird. So bats have to send out this really high-pitched chirp. And then based on how that chirp gets reflected to them, that tells them the position of other objects. But not only is, is that kind of weird, but if you've ever seen like the bats fly out of a cave or under a bridge, bats often, well, actually, before I get to that, the chirp itself is very, very loud if you hear a bat, right? You can hear them chirping. So what bats have to do is they have to kind of gate their their auditory like reception, uh, their sensitivity, because, you know, if I scream at you and then whisper, it's very hard to, to understand where the whisper is. So they have to kind of turn off their hearing while they're emitting the chirp mm. so that they can hear the reflections that they get back. Right. Is that uh, their erratic flight patterns part of it too, of doing the chirp, or maybe they just turn their neck. I guess well, we don't have to get in the nature channel on here. Let's <laughs> stick to the brain. <laughs> uh, not only that, bats often are around other bats. Right. And so bats have to also be able to weed out the loud chirps of other bats in response to their own reflect the reflections that they get from their chirping. And it's not like bats are doing this to avoid like large oncoming buses, which they do avoid. Right. They are catching bugs out of the air doing this, which is really weird. So Nagel says what we can think about what it's. Uh, We can try to think about what it's like to be a bat. And Nagel's point is that try as we might, we actually can't understand what the world is like for a bat. We lack the imaginative capacity to understand what the world feels like to a bat. I can do it. I have great imagination. And let, let's say so on. So yeah. Yeah. That, that's my like first blush. I let's think. say what? Let's say so what? Yes. 
What's the upshot? Why, why does that matter? The upshot there is that this is the same qualia objection that we talked about earlier. So remember when we we're talking about the sea slug, we can actually we could actually map the brain of a bat, right? And understand what exactly how the bat's brain operates. We can do this from a scientific perspective. We have no problem getting third-party objective information about the way the bat's brain operates. What we cannot do because we lack the sensory apparatus that a bat has is understand what the world is like to a bat. We lack the ability to understand the, the lived experience of a bat. The lived experience of a bat, exactly, right? Yeah, this is- Which would be true of everything, right? We're saying bat, but- No. With a bat, it's a slug we can do the lived experience because we've mapped it? No. We can map both of them and we won't. The slug might be in the bat category, but it's not true of everything. You oh. said that's true of oh, everything, okay. right? Well, I meant I, everything living, I guess. But Well, other people are living too. And we can do this with other people. The reason we are able to, the, to do this with other people and not bats, the argument goes, is that other people are have a sensory apparatus that is similar in constitution to, to ours, right? Okay. Um, Short of the yellow bus, blue bus, like distinction we made last time but that would, that would just be a minor thing maybe well this argument would apply to you even if you said well i don't buy that yellow bus blue bus thing right you can go okay well think about what it's like to be a bat like you just yeah so this is another argument to show that physics a third person scientific understanding of the way the world works will necessarily leave out information about what the world is like mm -hmm. and what it leaves out is the subjective experience of the bat that the bat has does physics leave it out or does our understanding of physics leave it out or are those the same thing <laughs> well again remember last week we said there are two things we could say about physics one is that physics is by definition this third person objective understanding of the world in which case by definition it is going to leave those things out sure or you could say, no, what I mean by physics is whatever the ultimate understanding of the world ends okay. up being, right? Right, right? And then it wouldn't leave it out, but then we don't really know what we, we don't have that. physics, yes. right? Uh, that, that physics doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, and we don't even know what it would look like. Yeah, yeah so okay. this is, again, this view that, look, it seems like functionalism leaves something out. It seems like materialism leaves something out. Functionalism, remember, was this improvement on materialism to try to make it at least even plausible. Mm -hmm. uh, now, while functionalism might still be our best scientific understanding of the mind, what I've been getting at is that it, it's necessarily leaving something out. So it can't be an exhaustive account of the relation between the mind and the body. So we have two theories left. One is very easy to explain. It's called Mysterianism. Uh, you can find <laughs> it in the work of like Colin McGinn. And then another is property dualism. And it's kind of related to Mysterianism. Mysterianism might be like a, a subset of property dualism, but the Mysterian view is we're not, we don't know, understand how the mind and the body interact with each other. We are never going to understand how the mind and the body interact with each other. It is, it is a mystery and it's destined to remain a mystery. It is beyond our capabilities of understanding. So and the evidence sounds like a God of the gaps problem. 
the criticism of this view is yeah. the same criticism of that, right? The evidence for the this view is that we've been thinking about this problem for a really long time. Right. And with we, really smart people and we still yeah. don't have a solution. And the only solutions we seem to arrive at are like solutions that we rip from other problems and try to apply to this problem, right? We go, oh, maybe the mind's like a phonograph. Maybe the mind's like a computer. Like <laughs> right. It's just like, yeah. just throw different solutions at the wall here and none of them seem to work. Maybe the mind is like a mystery. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe the mind is like a mystery. Yeah, this mysterianism. And then there is property dualism, which is the, as I take it, this way to kind of keep what we want out of dualism while accepting that qualia are a problem for materialism, so respecting the existence of qualia and the importance of the first person subjective experience, while at the same time trying to avoid the interaction problem that you get with substance dualism. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot for a break. And so listeners, I need a refresher on qualia again. I felt like I understood it, but now that Justin said it again, that's what we'll lead off with when we come back from the break. And then try to bring in, I think, you know, faith ideas. I think God is in here in different places and certainly want Justin's uh, professional opinion on, on what that looks like. So we'll be back in just a bit. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123PropertySucks or on Facebook at Gordney Institute for updates on our activities and research. The Gordney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have some events going on for high school students in the areas of philosophy, politics, and economics. It's our PPE League, and we have high school teachers involved in helping them out to figure out what they want to do and think about the school offering competitions on classical liberalism and the ideas that can help support society. If you think you have some students that might be interested in those, check out our website. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to Gortney.institute at gmail.com. Okay, so we're back. So we left off with a Qualia cliffhanger review, and then Justin, you need to dip into a little more on property dualism. Yes. So you want a Qualia review for yeah, right? Just a quick one. Yeah. So remember, uh, Qualia is subjective experience. So like pain is the classic example of Qualia. Qualia, you know. If you are experiencing pain, you're just experiencing pain. Pain is an experience, mm -hmm. right? Quelia are things for which there can't be like a ringer, if that makes sense. There can't be something that looks and feels just like pain, but isn't actually pain, right? If it feels like pain, it's pain. That's what pain is. There couldn't be something that, for all, that looked exactly like the color red, Right, but wasn't the actual experience of of seeing red? Does that make sense? Yeah, except wasn't quite the difference of my experience of pain versus yours or something too. It was the difference difference between your experience of pain and sea fire firing. Right, that's what the quail is. The sea fiber firing in your brain. Say I hooked up your brain to you know an MRI and you know I start pricking you and you go there it is again. There's the pain and well you know it's correlated with my prickings, but also at the same time every time I prick you your C fiber thirty two goes off right. The physicalist line is, oh, that just is pain, right? C-fiber 32 firing is pain, right? And the qualia, you know, the qualia freak response is, no, no, no. 
Because if I prick you another time and the C fiber goes off and you go, I didn't feel it that time, we don't say, well, actually, it was pain, even though you didn't feel it, right? Pain is the subjective experience, yeah. if yeah. that makes sense. Okay, so that's the quick qualia primer. Qualia are subjective experiences, things that, uh, that it is like. Okay, so property dualism. Actually, before I tell you what property dualism, I just want to reiterate what it is we are actually looking for when we are looking for a solution to the mind-body problem. All of the proposed theories that we have talked about, it's not like we have run tests and discovered that these theories are wrong, right? I haven't been telling you about like, oh, they did a test at, you know, the you know, the CERN super collider, and they found out that functionalism isn't correct. Mm -hmm. It's that each of these theories is at some point incomprehensible, the hard, the harder you think about it. So it's like God, it, it ultimately comes down to faith, which one you choose. None of them have no. no evidence that can't be overturned. No. Each of these, the one, the ones that we've been talking about so far, they all seem, it's not that any one of them might be true, they all seem to have fatal flaws, right? All of them seem like there is something wrong with them. So what we are looking for in a mind-body theory is a theory that, is, that doesn't contradict itself, that is plausible and not wildly and obviously incorrect. Like that doesn't leave out a large chunk of the world that we know exists. Like that doesn't deny that qualia exists or that doesn't kind of wave its hands at how the mental and the physical interact. Cause we have deep first person experience that the mental and the physical do interact, right? Mm -hmm. So the problem with dualism is the interaction problem. The problem with functionalism and behaviorism seem to be Sorry, functionalism and materialism seem to be like the qualia problem. Mm -hmm. And so we want a theory that does justice to our experience of qualia and that doesn't at least seemingly forbid the interaction between the mental and the physical. So property dualism is a way to try to accommodate both of those demands to kind of go between the scylla and however you pronounce the charbatist part that I, I never know how to, to navigate between those twin poles of disaster. And so this is the view that property dualism is a kind of monism. That is, there's only one kind of substance, but there are at least two different types of properties that that substance can have. And note, I didn't say only two different types of properties. I said there are at least two different types of properties. So this could actually be, you know, and I think the best exponents of this view are actually not dualist, but like multiple. Quad, actually, quadism right? or something. I think the best exponents of this do you think that what properties you want to ascribe to things depends on the kind of vocabulary <clears throat> that you're using, and there is an infinite number of vocabulary that we can infinite vocabularies that we can use to describe any specific events or objects. I was going to say we went from two to infinity like that. Yes, uh, very quickly. <laughs> so so on, one, one substance, two properties, at least two properties. Yes. Okay. One kind of substance, two different properties. Okay. So it's a monism in the sense that there's only one kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's dualist in the sense that there are at least two different ways to categorize these kinds of things. Maybe three. Yeah, maybe more. Yeah, at maybe least in probably three, right? Yeah. <laughs> Some 
property dualists are actually also explicitly physicalists too. They say actually everything's physical, but some physical things have mental properties. But I think that the better way to do this is to just say there's just one kind of stuff. Some of some of those events have physical properties and some of those events have mental properties. And some of the events that have physical properties also have mental properties. So like the three theses, I think the best articulation of this view is in, nobody will be surprised, in Donald Davidson's article on anomalous monism. So that's a name for this theory of, of mind also, anomalous monism. It's anomalous in the sense that there aren't strict psychophysical laws, and it's a monism in the sense that there's only one kind of stuff. Remember, we were saying that it's, it's, it can be a mystery under dualism how mental substances causally interact with physical substances. So on this view, causation is our strict causal laws are written in the language of physics mm -hmm. because strict causal laws cover physical events of physical types. And they say physical events of type X cause physical events of type Y. Right. Now, this is a property of the monolism. Being a physical event type X would be a property of an event. Right. This is easier to do it if you draw out, but we can't do that for the listeners anyway. So I'm not going to try to do it. You can explain to me what's okay. not, uh, yeah. what doesn't make sense verbally. Another way to think about this is like in terms of sentences. This is the example that's that Davidson used, and I think it's a good one. There, so sentences can have two different sets of properties. One is semantic properties and one is syntactical properties, right? The syntactical properties of a sentence are, you know, the letters and the order that those letters are in, and um, which of course means like the, the words and the order that the words are in, right? And we can specify, we can pick out any individual sentence by listing its syntactical properties. We can also, and sentences also have semantic properties, right? Some of them are true and some of them are false, right? I need a little more explanation, yeah. Sentences, yeah. some sentences are true, right? Oh, just the truth or not. Okay. Yeah, some of them are true and some of them gotcha, are false. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and, sorry, I, I do want to interrupt. Syntactic, property, syntactic properties would be like if a certain clause comes first in the sentence or something. Punctuation. Right? Yes, just that. Uh, letters, all of that. Yeah, uh, everything about like the way the sentence is put together is a syntactical property of the sentence. We could like group like syntactical property sentences, right? Yeah, okay. we could say these are conditionals. Okay, um, and sure. that would be okay. you know, a function okay. of its yep. uh, syntactic property. And the semantics good. is uh, rain does not fall from the sky. That's uh, false. It's a it's a it's it falsity. can be a proper sentence, but it's false. Its falsity would be a semantic property right. of that sentence, okay. right? Yep. Um, so we can sort sentences into a, at least two categories, the true ones and the false ones, mm -hmm. right? And we can sort sentences into semantic categories. These are the conditionals, and these are all the sentences. Syntactic. Syntactic. Is yeah, syntactic. Yeah. If we sort them syntactically, one of the ways we could sort them syntactically is to say these are all the sentences that are conditionals, the if-thens. If then. And these are all the non-conditional yeah. um, sentences, right? Sure. And the syntax comes from external rules that have been established through norms or otherwise too, Forget right? It. No. Don't, don't even worry. That don't doesn't do that. come into that at all. Don't. So okay. don't yeah. <laughs> okay. 
take it back. Uh, <laughs> I'll suck um, it back in. There we go. All right. But even though we have these two different ways to categorize sentences, there is no map from syntactic properties to semantic properties. Sure. Yeah. Even though we can individuate any sentence either by its syntactical properties or its semantic properties, its syntactical properties alone uh, aren't enough for us to identify its semantic yeah. properties in a law-like manner. The, the property types are independent of each other. Yes. Another way of saying good liars have good syntax. They can what? put a sentence together well or speak it well. Good liars sound official. Yeah, there, there are right? some, there, maybe there are some liars who can sound good and some liars sound bad, or some people tell the truth right. sound good. And some but there's no mapping good. back to their syntax to the semantics. Yeah, uh, we can't tell one from the other, right? <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Um, just because something's conditional doesn't mean it's true. Just because it's not conditional also doesn't mean it's true and true of falseness, too. Yeah. <laughs> I made that way more complicated than having that last clause for that. Yes. So anomalous monism has three theses. One is that the physical and the mental causally interact with each other. Okay. And that seems to be true just from our experience, right? Mm -hmm. By mental, we mean physical brain or do we mean mind? No, we mean mind. Okay. Right. When we touch the stove, we have pain. Okay. Um, when we decide to raise our arm, our arm goes up. All right. right? Um, so that seems undeniable. Okay. Um, that's fine. And the second premise is that events that are causally related to each other operate under strict causal laws, where a causal law says that event of type X will cause event of type Y, right? And usually it doesn't even say cause, right? In a good physics, the word cause doesn't even appear. Okay. And the third thesis is that there are no law-like relations between mental type events and physical type events. And the thesis is that these three premises taken together, though they might appear to, do not contradict each other. Any mental event... So it's just me or does it seem like it's just stating the obvious, like Descartes would have said, oh yeah, that's what I meant. It might be what Descartes meant. It's not what he said. So it just seems like a declaration of... Uh, well, I speak, therefore it is. Let, let, let me try to, one issue that immediately comes up to me is why, why is it that we're assuming here that the, that causally relatable events are written in the language of physics? Don't we have like causality outside of physics? Like, can't we have causality in math uh, or logical causality that's not contingent on like under has some physical understanding or am I wrong? There? Maybe, but it seems like the causation that we're worried about in philosophy of mind okay. is All right. physical causation. I see. Right? Okay. I'm perfectly fine with saying that there's like a logical cause, you know, version of causation too. And I think I did say something like that earlier when we were talking about the way that thoughts can cause each other. So that might throw a wrench in my argument here. And so how, how could two things have a relationship between each other, but not have any laws that condition that relationship? On this view, they do have a law that conditions that relationship. But so a mental event can cause a physical event, right? On this view, according to premise one. Okay. 
And according to premise two, any events that are causally related will fall under a causal law. Yes. Which says that events of one type cause events of the other type. Yes. And the third premise says there is no law-like type relationship between mental events and physical events. And yes. I think, doesn't that just contradict what yeah, you just it, said? Yeah, it seems like nonsense. No, because the, you can... On this view, causation is a description of the relationship between events as described. So the event will fall under a causal law only if it's described in physical terms, okay. not if it's described in mental terms. Okay. That is, if you pick the event out by its physical properties, then its physical properties will explain it's falling under the law-like relationship with its the physical event that it causes. Okay. But since mental events are also events that have a physical description, what you won't get is a law that says all events of mental type M cause physical event type P, mm. right? Uh, so there's not a law between mental and physical events. Yeah, that's premise three. There is, there is no law. And how, how could that be? If there's a relationship, exists, but there's no law. If there's a relationship between mental and physical events, how could there be lo no law governing the mental and physical events? Single event, single mental events cause single physical events. But <laughs> cause and vary from person to person. I guess I want to throw in too. Correct. Single mental events cause single physical events. Answer Peter's question. Okay. okay. Which was I thought it was related, but yes, that's how far off I am on this topic. The law will cover mental events because it covers physical events. But what it won't cover is types of mental events causing types of physical so there's events. There's no general laws. Laws on this view are they are by definition generalizations. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mental events will cause physical events, but you won't be able to formulate a law that says mental events of this type cause this type okay. of physical events. Okay. Um, now your question. Was just when you were saying a single event, I'm kind of going person to person of whether this applies to all people one direction or the other, or is it because of people are different that there's no mapping backs. Like a single person might have a decent mapping back, but it doesn't apply to everybody in the same way. I think the the stronger version of it is that it's, I mean, it's even in the single individual okay. that you won't be able to find these kind of law-like necessary and sufficient generalizations between these different types. On this view, mental events can cause physical events, right? That's premise one. And that seems true from experience. Sure, sure. And events are mental as described. So what you won't find is a relationship between events described as mental events and events described as physical events. The law-like aspect of it will only be events described as physical events to events described as physical events. Now, remember, this is why I said that whole thing about what we are after is a view that isn't insane, right? Sure. And that doesn't uh, have obvious logical problems. And so if the objection, one of the things that you said earlier was like, 
this just sounds like common sense. And this is what Descartes should have said, right? <laughs> and I think the correct Davidsonian response to that is, yes, this is what Descartes should have said. And all of these three premises are things that seem intuitively obvious to us. The trouble is trying to articulate a way in which they can cohabitate in logical space mm. without us running into these huge problems. So I, I do have an, like sort of an objection here, yeah. now, which I like this because I do like reserving a space for the minds and mental events. So I like that there is a dualism maintained to a certain extent. Is there a sense in which this is very similar? I forget the actual name, the Mysterio view or whatever. That's a Spider-Man villain. Not <laughs> Mysterian. Uh, Mysterian. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it's similar to the Mysterian view in that there is a sense in which we're admitting a lack of understanding about the relationship between mental events and physical events, right? Or are we not? Well, kind of. Um because if we're saying there's no laws governing them, what we're saying is we can't understand general relationships about them, right? Um, or that maybe they're saying there are no general relationships, I guess. I, I think the, the way to put it that's sympathetic to your objection is like this does, right? This just seems to say like, how do we relate these properties to each other? We don't really know. The response to it that's more sympathetic to the position is something like, no, it says exactly how these events are related to each other, how mental events and physical events are related to each other. It says they're the same event, right? It says mental events are physical events. And so uh, it's not mysterious in that case. It just says that they're identical. And it says something like our mental vocabulary just sorts things in a much different manner than our physical vocabulary does. This should actually be something we would expect given the different histories of these vocabularies. Our mental vocabulary is very, very old, right? That's why it's called folk psychology, right? We mm -hmm. use terms like pain, you know, part of the objection to the churchlands is that we don't want to give up on terms like pain, but even we've come up with some newer terms too, like heartbreak, ennui, uh, right? Despair, you know, things like forgetting what you were going to say. Well, I think uh, now I've reconsidered my liking okay. of this position because actually I, I was saying that it does preserve dualism, but it kind of doesn't also that there is a sense in which these two things are the same, right? They're the same substance ultimately. And so if they're the same, don't we lose Descartes' insight, which I don't think we actually lose it. So I'm not actually despairing about this, but mentally, like if your, for example, belief system hinges on this idea that your spirit goes on after your body. Yeah, dies. That's but if, if these are of the same substance, <clears throat> then when one substance disappears, wouldn't the other substance because it's part identical of the disappear? Remains. Yeah, so this might be a problem depending on what your view of the mind is, right? The, uh, one of the selling points of Descartes' thesis was that it seems obvious that, that you could survive death on this view, yeah. on Descartes' view, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, in, it, you almost lose an eternal soul aspect that you get with Descartes. Maybe you don't totally lose it, but it at least isn't a logical implication of this theory. It's not, yeah, it doesn't just spit it out yeah. in the way that Descartes does, right? right? According to Descartes' view, it's just obvious that you have an eternal soul. Well, well here's what I'm thinking with this form of dualism, property dualism, is that because they're separate in nature and there's no laws mapping back and forth of that kind, it's possible for your body to die off and the other substance is still there. There's no other substance. You're thinking of the, substance dualism. 
I think your objection is right on. Okay. And you're trying to okay. give a way out to property dualists, but I don't think it's as easy for them as I think you were trying to make it. Okay. Does that even make sense? Though the, even though the mental and physical laws, as in the third premise, state that there, there are no laws, they are still one substance, even though there's no laws that correlate them? It would be like, you know, we were talking about the syntactic and semantic properties of a sentence. These are two different ways to identify the same sentence. If you take away all of the syntactic properties of the sentence, you lose the truth. You lose the semantic properties yeah, of the yeah. sentence too, right? Something can't have syntax. Okay, bear with me. I got one more thought on that. So it's not Bible, going to the same Bible says, you know, the second coming <clears throat> resurrection of the bodies and our body and is, is brought back together. So there was this kind of separation. It's still one substance, but you got buried. Maybe you got burned and maybe you got disintegrated. But somehow in the second coming, that substance relationship is restored the way there are final plenty of versions of religion that say that uh, bodily resurrection right. is yeah. uh, what you get, right? Yeah. And in that case, then this poses no problem. That's right. That's what I mean. Right? It's, it's no, like it, it was kind of does. Uh, I mean, like it would imply. Like there's scriptural problems with this. Like Jesus says to the thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And if what he really meant was when your body's resurrected in 6,000 years, that's a really weird sentence. Or maybe he's being metaphorical or something like this. But it seems weird to think we all die permanently and go away until the resurrection of our bodies and then we're back again. Usually Christians think that, no, you actually go to heaven right away with your soul and then you're reunited with your body later. I mean, it, I'm it's not, not saying possible. that there aren't scriptural. Problems. Yes, yeah, yeah. I was saying that there are no <laughs> right uh, problems with your identity under a bodily resurrection. Yes, yes. No, I, right? I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, I just yeah. wanted to point out that I think like this would be a weird Christian belief for a Christian to have. The uh, most Christian religions think that it's not like you stop existing until the resurrection of the body. Most Christians don't believe it. Maybe some do, but that's what I mean. I guess what I'm saying is your the bodily, since you can't map them back, it's possible for whatever, let's go down to the atomic level, is sitting in the ground for 6,000 years and your mind level is in some sort of, let's call it heaven or intermediate place. And then ultimately at the second coming, those atoms become back to some sort of thing. In other words, the substance was never gone. It was all what is it? You guys got us. You got economists for sure on uh, jargon. Uh, <laughs> anomalism, right? It was all one substance. It's just now monism, re monism yeah. reconstituted back to the way God originally intended or something. So, so it, would, it would be kind of weird to view it this because like what I'm thinking of is sometimes Christians will also say that the Trinity involves this substance concept that God, the father and God, the son are different persons, but they're of the same, same substance. substance. Yeah, that's but, interesting. but if you say that let's imagine a world where God disappears. And then you say, oh, but Jesus is still here because he was his own person. But it's like, yeah, but no. I mean, if you if he's of the same substance and the substance disappears, he disappears too. Like, I, I, I don't understand how you could preserve the substance if like the uh, part of the substance, the body dies. Yeah, so remember there, I said there are two different ways to view substance dualism. Sure. Uh, one was that one is that it's a physicalism that says some physical events are also mental events, but at the bottom, everything is physical. Sure. The other way, and this is, I think, the better way to view it is that it's, it's just a monism and that some events are physically describable. And some are. 
and some aren't, and some are uh, mentally describable, right? And some of those mental, some of those events that are mentally describable okay. are also physically describable. Okay. So then you actually don't have to take a line on what the underlying substance actually is. Sure. And maybe that is slightly more ecumenical. I see. But it, it, it will still have problems. And it will still, I think, be hard to wrap your mind around how your identity can survive bodily death on this view. My own view is something like, I don't see how we're going to end up with a acceptable view of the philosophy of mind that is scientifically adequate, also answers to our subjective experience and explains exactly how we survive bodily death. I think that you are going to have to have some faith in there. And this idea that like, oh, it makes it difficult to understand this. I think, yeah, it does. I actually think it's difficult on any of these yeah. uh, conceptions to understand what exact, I mean, even under substance dualism, I think if you actually think about it, it becomes actually very hard to under, to wrap your mind around what it would actually mean for the, for you to continue after bodily death. Yeah. So I, I just think that that's built into the concept of surviving bodily death period it seems like it's an attempt to try to kind of like understand the mind of god or something which i'm happy to say i can't do so yeah that's, that's my own two cents I, I do want to highlight i think after hearing everyone talk i think russ's point was like very very good in highlighting the relationship between christianity and substance dualism now i don't want to engage in like eisegesis of reading substance dualism into the bible i don't think that that's true but like the two are compatible in the sense that there's something weird about the Christian religion, and Luke, we learned to talk about this in value systems, where the prevailing religion of the Greeks, for example, focused on the idea that like the spirit is the superior thing, and the mind and the soul are the good thing, and the physical thing is actually like lower. Mm -hmm. And when we die, our soul will remain and will be freed from these physical boundaries, which are, are lower. Christianity has always, and early Judaism, has always taken the view that actually like the physical isn't instrumental part of like the creation mm -hmm. that we shouldn't just hope to throw this away and be little souls floating on clouds uh no there's like a purpose to this physical resurrection side that's like unique in our creation and this that matches with this very well because what this is saying is like yeah the, these two things are part of each other uh they're they're part of the same thing rather so i, I think that's really interesting yeah well i think uh hebrews 11 is what we say at the beginning of the podcast i think it's relevant here now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Sounds like we circled around to faith at the end of the day with this uh, particular podcast. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Five-star rating helps other people find us and be sure to pass it along to your friends and family who you think might enjoy it also. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.